Friends, turn with me now in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2. I want to read briefly from Hosea chapter 2. Our sermon text this morning is the very end of Acts chapter 21. And then we're going to go into Acts chapter 22. And we're going to take something of a large bite out of Acts 21, Acts 22, as we try to handle this moving narrative about Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. But to provide some context for that passage, I want to look first from Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. Hosea 2, beginning in verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there. In the valley of Achor, as a door of hope, she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband, and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Amen. The prophet Hosea is facing an unusual and difficult challenge. The people of God are most unfaithful, and he himself is called by the Spirit of God to bear witness to that unfaithfulness by himself being wedded to an adulterous woman, an unfaithful woman. And yet Hosea's prophecy, the book that he leaves as a legacy of his preaching, is strewn with these rich gems in which the Lord says, I know how to deal with your unfaithfulness. I know how to fix this unloyalty that your heart has for me. I will woo you. I will romance you. With mercy and with kindness, I will bind you to me. And like a faithful husband, I will provide abundantly for you. This, my friends, is what brings forth our confession. You are my God. And what brings forth our true identity. We are his people. Beloved, he is a God abundant in mercy and forgiveness and love. And so we are wedded to him. With this in mind, turn over to Acts chapter 21. We're going to look this morning from Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 30, and read down through chapter 22, verse 22. 
as I mentioned, we're sort of breaking into this dramatic story. We've already looked at how Paul goes up to the temple and why Paul goes up to the temple. We're going to look now today at the consequences of him going up to the temple and the fallout of the riot. So this is Acts chapter 21. I'm going to begin reading in verse 30. Acts 21, beginning in verse 30. Here again, the word of the Lord. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried out one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Then, as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak with you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. When they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and stood and said to me, 
brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Amen. And amen. This past week, I was on the receiving end of an emotional expression of gratitude. It's kind of awkward, isn't it? Especially when you realize that all the praise and gratitude is going to your congregation and you had almost nothing to do with it. It was a sweet moment, intense with affection and kindness. And I'm struggling, as I often find myself as a pastor, to find the right words. You would think a guy who gets paid to talk for a living could find words. It's sometimes shockingly difficult. And at last I said, with a weak shrug. Well, we're family. And it became abundantly clear that that was the correct answer. That indeed is the truth, beloved. It is the truth of God for us this morning from this text. That we are the family of God. That you, the church of Jesus Christ, are Jesus' family. And so we should talk about Jesus. We should cultivate in our relationships the habit of Jesus-centered conversation. As the family of Jesus, let it be our deliberate study to weave into our daily dialogue the name, person, work of Jesus Christ. There was an interesting observation in a book on evangelism I recently read. It said one of the reasons we so struggle to talk about Jesus with unbelievers is we don't talk about Jesus with believers. We're just not in the habit of talking about Jesus. And my friends, we have a text before us to arm us and inspire us to actually delight in our Jesus and to want to talk about him. With this in mind, let's go through the text. Notice in verses 30 through 36. At the very beginning, we are introduced to an important question concerning the Apostle Paul. You see, he's in a bit of a problem. He's gone up to the temple in order to keep peace with the Jewish believers who are fearful that he is abandoning his Jewishness, turning away from the law and the sacrificial system. 
He has gone up to the temple to show his personal conformity to the standards of Moses. Though not essential for salvation, they are nevertheless the cultural conditions Paul is willing to meet in order to preserve his relationship with the Jews. And as he goes up into the temple, the whole plan backfires. When all at once the Jews from Ephesus, who recognize him from the riot in Ephesus, decide to start their own riot. Hey, if it worked for the pagans in Ephesus, why can't it work for the Jews in Jerusalem? And so they launch a riot. Paul is dragged out of the temple into the street, and there they begin to beat him intent on killing him there in the streets. The Roman learns of the uproar, this commander. He rallies his Roman soldiers, races into the street, and bounds Paul to protect him. Notice then in verse 33, the commander seeks to identify the problem. Who is he? What has he done? In the multitude, verse 34, some cry out one thing and some cry out another, and he cannot ascertain the truth. This is a hallmark of all mobs and riots. The vast majority of the people in the room don't know why they're there. This is a hallmark of this riot. They don't know why they've come together. They don't know who he is. They just know he should die. And the question cannot be answered. Unable to answer the question, the soldiers carry Paul back to the barracks to seek an answer to this question. Who is he? And all the while, the chants of the mob rise from the street, away with him, away with him. And by this, they do not mean take him to the barracks. They mean take him to the grave. Away with him from earth. At this point, the only thing this Roman soldier knows about Paul's identity is that the Jews think he should die. That's it. They don't know who he is. And yet it's one of those great big burning questions, isn't it? Who are you? It's one of the questions we ask one another when you first walk in. We had an unexpected visitor come through the door. We had to stare at each other for a moment through our face masks. Who are you? It's the great question that rises throughout all philosophy. Who are we? But it's not an ivory tower question. And it's not just a question for that first moment when a strange face hidden by a mask comes into the room. It is the question that is tearing our nation apart. We don't even agree anymore on the fundamentals of human nature. Does your anatomy and your biology define your sex? What is gender? Our theology of humanity is up for debate. Who are we? It's an identity question that's essential that drives us. It is the thing that gives definition to our mission, and we as a congregation must address this issue. Who are we? And what are we doing? The answer lies in the progress of this text. Luke takes that mission of the Roman soldier to discover who Paul is and lays out for us the rest of the narrative in answer to that question. Paul begins to answer that question, who am I? By first noting that he is a bridge between warring worlds. Beginning in verse 37, Paul turns to the Roman commander and he speaks to him in Greek, may I speak to you? 
The Roman commander is alarmed and surprised. You can speak Greek. He had been assuming that Paul was an uneducated Egyptian, one of those zealots, one of those violent men. I mean, if you think about it, there's a mob that's trying to beat you to death. You're probably not a well-educated person, and you're probably not someone who's respectable and dignified and wealthy and well-off, unless it's the French Revolution. But apart from that, you're in a situation where it is likely that he is a very violent figure, where he's a very undesirable figure. And so he rightly assumes that this is someone that the Jews would hate and want to murder, like an Egyptian who led assassins into the wilderness. But Paul answers most surprisingly, no, I'm a Jew. Oh, that's awkward. I've seen lots of Jewish riots in my time in the Roman army, but not against other Jews. And then he says, I'm a Jew of Tarsus. That's even more awkward. That's a Roman city in which Roman citizenship is given to those who are born there. And he is speaking Greek. Paul stands as a bridge between three worlds that at this time were much at war with one another. He speaks Greek. He is a Roman. He is a Jew. This Roman commander cannot bring peace. Indeed, Roman commanders had failed for centuries trying to bring peace. But by this point, he recognizes an asset in his midst. The Apostle Paul is one who can bring reconciliation. One who has the potential, at least, to speak the language of the Jewish mob and the language of the Roman soldier. He is a bridge between their worlds. My friends, who are we? Are we not the bridge that brings reconciliation into a broken and divided world? Has not Paul told the church in Corinth that we are the ones entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation? And are we not the ones who even far more stand as the bridge between heaven and earth? Is not this congregation, the new humanity in Christ Jesus, a new creation born through our union with him? Beloved, we are. This is the seed of the new heavens and the new earth, the church of the living God, serving as a bridge between that which is heavenly and earthly. Paul commanded us in Colossians chapter 3 to set our minds on things that are above where Christ is in the heavenly places. But he also told us to put to death what is earthly in us. We are, as a congregation, those who have been planted here in Cambridge to bridge the gap between God and man by serving the gospel of grace, by learning the language of Cantabrigians, by learning the language of Bostonians. And as every single one of you who weren't born in New England know, it's a funny language, ain't it? And we come and we learn the language. We learn the language of their heart. We learn the language of their mind so that we can speak as a bridge between heaven and earth and say, here is Jesus. But friends, we're not only a bridge. We're a bridge who have something meaningful to offer both sides of the divide. Beginning in verse 3, Paul, having obtained the attention of his audience, addresses his past. 
a past that would have been known to a great many of those in the mob. He says to them, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. He is a Jew of profound credential, a Roman citizen of Tarsus, but a student of Gamaliel, perhaps the most brilliant scholar of that age, having grown up in Jerusalem, the sacred city. He was brought up in the strictness of the Father's law. He was zealous for God. He notes, as you are today. Meaning, Paul remembers the day there was a riot in Jerusalem. He was at the head of the mob. The day Stephen was stoned. Paul says, I know where you're coming from. Paul can sympathize with his murderers, having once been a murderer. He can empathize with the rioters, having once stirred up a riot. He says, indeed, I went out and pursued persecution of those who wished to know Christ. And I brought them in chains to Jerusalem from Damascus, or at least sought to. You see, my friends, Paul is a man with a past. Who are we? We are a congregation with a past. We are a congregation with skeletons in the closet. We are a congregation with sins in the corners of our heart and brokenness in all our works. It is a stunning realization, one that I have come increasingly more and more to grapple with and grasp. Christ has not called for fully sanctified and perfected leaders in his church. He has called for men and women to limp and to lead others who limp. There is a brokenness he anticipates in his people. That we should be a people who can sympathize with the weakness of others. And who can deal gently with the sins of others. Because we have been thoroughly humbled by our own sins and sorrows. Why are we so effective as the people of God at bridging the gap between Savior and sinner? Because we are sinners too. Because we are beggars who have found bread in Christ. This is who we are. Sinners who have tasted grace and said, come, feast with me. This is why the congregation of Jesus Christ planted on Antrim Street has an effective ministry to offer because we can relate well to the sins and sorrows of our neighbors. That's who we are. Sinners and sufferers too. But there is something that has made a difference. The mob does not rise up and seek to murder one who's identical. No, there is a difference that they've identified and so Paul now introduces the source of that difference in verses 6 through 11. He says that on his way to Damascus, attempting to fulfill the murderous intent of his own heart, he encountered someone he did not expect. He encountered a brilliant noonday light that shone from the heavens. And in the midst of that light, he heard a voice, a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? Notice he identified correctly the superiority and greatness of the one who is speaking. He calls him Lord. In a Jewish culture, this is divinity. In fact, all of this speaks of divinity. There's a great light from heaven, a great voice from heaven. All of this cries out divinity. So can you imagine the shock and the scandal in Paul's heart? Or in his Jewish audience's heart? 
when they hear the words, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Wait, we know him, we killed him. Why is he speaking from heaven? Why is his voice wreathed in heavenly light? This is a stunning turn of events, most unexpected. Why are you persecuting me, he says. Jesus does not ask, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people? He so intimately and closely identifies with the sufferer, he calls the church me. Why are you persecuting me? As he sees the light, as he hears the voice, as he is struck blind, Paul at last comes to grasp the reality. In the words of John Newton, finally blind, he actually sees. And he says, what would you have me do, Lord? You see, Paul surrenders. Overwhelmed by the revelation of Jesus Christ, Paul cannot resist anymore and surrenders. What would you have me do? What shall I do? He surrenders to being a servant of this glorious king. The glory of that light has captivated him and held him. Beloved, who are we? We are those who have the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not a noonday light in the sky, not a voice in the ear from the heavens, but scriptures printed for us and given for us. We are the people of the Bible, the people who have the revelation of Jesus Christ, which transforms us, that moves us from sinner to saint, that moves us from sufferer to savior, that moves us into the arms of Christ. Beloved, who are we? We are a people with a past. But we are also a people who possess the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who possess the very voice and light of Christ. For in Psalm 119, he says, The opening or unfolding of your words gives light. In that same psalm, he says, Your word is a light into my feet and a lamp into my path. Dear saints, we have the light of Christ. Not for a moment on a road to Damascus, but any time you want. Has it ever occurred to you that the Apostle Peter, who stood on the mountain and saw Moses and Elijah flank Jesus Christ and saw them shine with heavenly glory, then wrote to the church, and we have something better. Can you imagine an experience better than seeing Jesus shine with heavenly glory on the top of a mountain? Peter can. It's called your Bible. It's better. We have the full revelation of God's love in Jesus Christ. Who are we? The people who possess and rejoice in our Bible, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But so too, as recipients of this grace, those who have been brought out of a past of sin and sorrow and brought into the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we are then called to a mission. Who is Paul? Thirdly, verses 12 through 16. He comes into Damascus blind, led by the hand, and there Ananias comes to him. Notice Ananias, Ananias's credentials. He's a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews, and he can heal with a word. So when this guy speaks, people listen. And he speaks to Paul and he says, here's your appointment. Here is your mission. Here is your responsibility. Verse 15, you will be his witness to all men. 
You will be his witness to all men. Why are you waiting? Rise up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Who is Paul? He is a witness of Jesus Christ. He has heard his voice, verse 14. He has seen him exalted in glory, verse 14. He is the one chosen by God to make known to the world the grace and glory of Jesus Christ. Beloved, who are we? As a congregation of Jesus Christ, who are we? We are a people with a past, to be sure. We are the people who possess the scriptures, to be sure. But my friends, we are also those who have been summoned by Jesus to make known what we have heard, what we have learned, that we should be able to be witnesses and say, I have heard Jesus. I have come to know and understand Jesus. And I'm in mission for this. In fact, this is the mark of baptism, is it not? That we should be washed out of sin into a calling upon of the name of the Lord. That we, through the mark of baptism, should be set aside from the community of sin to the community of calling on Christ. A praying people. A people who call upon Christ and speak the name of Christ to others. We enter this sacred fellowship of the church. And dear saints, that is a mission to which we are summoned by appointment. It is interesting that on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, when you get there, I'll give you your appointment. This is a great experience for anyone who served in the military. You are sometimes given orders that consist of go to another location and you will be told what to do. This is the extent of this order. Paul, get up and go to Damascus and you will be told what to do. How many of us find ourselves living like that? Go somewhere and you'll figure it out when you get there. Is, is that just not our experience like every single day? Go to work and you'll figure it out. Go home and take care of your family and you'll figure it out. Jack Miller's counsel to a young pastor is, love your people, preach to your people, pray for your people, and when you're done, you'll find out there isn't much more you really ought to be doing anyway. Mark Driscoll's counsel to young pastors was, preach, pray, love, stay. My friends, there is a bliss to the community that embraces this simplicity. To know Christ and to make him known. He has chosen us in verse 14 that we should know his will for our salvation. That we should know that he loves us and that we should make known that love to others. It is that simple. Why are we here on Antrim Street? To know Christ and to make Christ known. But none of these things answer the riot. Isn't it interesting that to this point there is silence in the crowd. And they are content to receive this message. They are relatively undisturbed by all these things that conform nicely to their Jewish worldview. Okay, Paul's like us. He was once a persecutor. Why is he now unwilling to persecute? Oh, because he encountered this heavenly vision that told him to knock it off. Why is it that he is now someone else who's willing to 
go out into the world and to witness to Christ because he had this revelation from Jesus and having tasted the love of Christ, he must now share that love with others. But there is something different in his final remarks. Notice in verse 22, they listened to him until his final word, beginning in verse 17. Then they raise their voices and say, away with such a fellow from the earth for he is not fit to live. They deduce from his final statement that he is a man indeed worthy of death. What is it that so disturbs them? What is it that boils their blood and brings forth their murderous intentions? Verses 17 and 18, I was in Jerusalem, the city of David, the sacred city of the Jews. Indeed, I was in the temple, that house of worship, that place of sanctity, and I was in a trance. I slipped into a deep spiritual sleep, and, and there I had the voice of God saying to me. The voice of him saying, make haste and get out of Jerusalem, and they will not receive your testimony. He said, Lord, they know who I am. They know that I imprisoned your followers, that I beat your followers, that I was the one at the head of the riot when they took down Stephen. I was the one that was keeping their cloaks from being splattered with blood. I was the one that valued their garments more than I valued the life of Stephen. I am chief among the Jewish traitors. They shall never listen to me, Lord. And he said, depart, for I will send you to the Gentiles. And it's this word that they cannot bear to hear. Wait, wait, wait. Time out, Paul. You're trying to tell me that God loves Gentiles? Surely not. My friends, who are we? We are the ones summoned by Christ to love the most unlovable. And to love the most unlovely. To do good to those who persecute us. To pray for those who imprison us. Depart, for I will send you from here to the Gentiles. Beloved, we are the ones who are summoned and who are sent. Whom Jesus says in verse 28 are the ones to be going. To be going on commission. To make known and to make disciples of Christ. That we should gather to him worshipers. Who are we? What is this congregation's purpose and mission? Why were we planted here 126 years ago? My friends, it is so that we might know Jesus and make him known. That we should seek out those who should be discipled by him. And that we should not define them by what they look like or where they stand. Paul's appointment was that he should go to those farthest away, most unlike him, most unlovely and unlovable. And to tell them of the love of Christ. You see, this is the family mission. This is the family motto. Because from the foundation of the world, there was a heavenly father who turned to a heavenly son and said, what on earth are we going to do about these wretched sinners? And together they said, we will seek them and we will save them. It's the family mission. It's the family motto. Beloved, you are Jesus' family. 
And this is what he has called us to do, to know him and to make him known. This is what we are summoned to this street for every Sunday and what we are scattered from this house for every Monday through Saturday, that we should know him and make him known. Beloved, you are Jesus's family. Let's talk about Jesus. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day that you have made. We give you thanks, Father, for this good word that you through your spirit have recorded through Luke that we might know how Paul testified to the reality of your grace. How you took a man who was once chief among sinners and made him an apostle to the Gentiles. And we thank you, our Father, that you have adopted us in Christ, that we who were aliens, orphans, unloved, have become now the bride and body of Jesus Christ, children of the living God. And we pray that out of the fullness of that identity and grace, we would make him known and be servants this week of his grace to others. O oh, Father, remember us this week, this day, and fill us up to the full with the love of Christ that we might spill out his grace into all our lives and leave drops of grace wherever we go. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.